0: I do think this is a central debate, right? That's affecting what we invest in and what we prioritize in is, you know, how much of of space is, you know, this relationship of space and warfare. How much is space going to be, you know, primarily a domain to support terrestrial warfare and how much of it is going to be a domain for warfare itself.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report This is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business and defense, not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. This week's episode is your primer on the state of the U.S. military space budget. And it's before the House and the Senate reconvene for what's likely going to be a slugfest over the entire defense budget and space and space business are well caught up in it. The clock runs out on the current fiscal year on September 30th. So for the government to remain open, both chambers will need to vote in favor of a continuing resolution to keep the lights on while the Senate and the House negotiate. The good news is that both the Senate and House leadership have agreed to push through a bill that does just that when they all return this September. Now, both the House and the Senate passed their defense authorization bills in July that surpass eight hundred and eighty six billion dollars and are above what the President asked for in defense discretionary funding. Both of the bills target a defense space top line of more than $31 billion. But that's about a billion below the president's proposal. And most of that accounting difference is coming out of what could be the budget for the U.S. Space Force. And the disparities don't end there. How the Senate and the House allocate their $31 billion also diverge. To unravel what's important to know, we've got Chris Stone, Peter Gerritsen, and Sam Wilson— We're going to take a look at DOD space, so that's including Space Force, the National Reconnaissance Office, anything that is defense and space related. Here's our conversation. Hello and welcome back, Chris, Peter, and Sam.
2: Hi there. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
3: Laura, nice to be back.
1: Thanks for having me, Laura. Now, I seem to always have you guys on for the very meaty discussions. So before we take out the forks and knives and cut into the different budgets the House and Senate are serving up, prior to them hammering out a compromise, that is, let's do a quick round of introductions. And Chris, you know, I always have you start.
2: Well, thanks. My name is Christopher Stone. I am a senior fellow uh, for space deterrence at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies in Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm a former Special Assistant to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. And uh, like many of these guys, I, I write fairly prolifically. So um, looking forward to the discussion.
3: And Peter? I'm Peter Gerritsen. I'm a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. And I've written a couple of books on space policy that are pretty current. Scramble for the Skies. And uh, the second one is The Next Space Race both of which are now available on Audible for you commuters.
1: And Sam, what about you? Uh, Hi, I'm Sam Wilson. I'm
0: with the Center for Space Policy and Strategy, where I run our national security team. And I write slowly, so not as prolifically as, uh, as Chris and Peter.
1: Thank you guys very much. There's billions to talk about. We're going to sidestep the department-wide top lines and jump right into the fact that the Biden administration asked for 32.4 billion for most of the easily identifiable defense space expenditures. That space force, all the other service branches, space-related then their space-related expenditures, as well as the agencies. Both the Senate and the House versions of the defense budget bill cut out more than a billion dollars from President Biden's request. And most of that is coming out of the Space Force. And according to my very limited math skills, the Senate and the House want to keep next year's growth in defense space spending to just above 6%. and That's in contrast to what the administration asked for, which was a 10% bump. And my accounting includes adjustments for inflation. The Space Force is new and its responsibilities are growing, aren't they? I mean, all the other branches are continuing to develop the ways in which they use and depend on space capabilities. And well, it's not really like our adversaries, specifically China, you know, it's not like they've agreed to a timeout on developing their defense space technologies. So, Sam, what's behind this thinking? You're the number one budget expert here.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. If you look at the top line for what the House Appropriations Committee and the Senate Appropriations Committee, uh, what their what their bills were for for Space Force, it looks very similar, right? But but within that, what they actually cut is very different. So um, the SAC, the, the Senate Appropriations Committee, um, cut the the polar program pretty significantly for the missile warning and tracking capability. Um, they also uh, cut uh, the the NC three strategic satcom capability pretty significantly. So those two cuts were like 550 million right there, right? Um, and, and then they they actually increased funding for things like commercial space. Um, they increased uh, funding for uh, classified rdt and And that budget line I think is really interesting if you look at, if you think about the House and the Senate, because the difference between the House and the Senate bill for that budget line is almost 700 million, right? So just that budget line is almost 700 million difference between the two. So even though they get to the same figure, it, they got there through different ways, right? The, the Senate increased a lot uh, and then cut a lot. Um, whereas the House was a little bit more, it was closer um, to what the the administration requested. It was more modest cuts, Um and, and as well as a significant cut to the to the uh, classified RDTE and e and when I say RDTE, and uh, e that initialism is research, development, testing, and evaluation. That appropriation is sixty percent of, of Space Force's budget, um, and that's been consistent with years past. And and that kind of speaks to the nature of Space Force being mostly focused on uh, complex hardware, right, rather than heavy procurement or O and M. Um, or military personnel.
1: Guys, well, then what cuts relative to what the president has asked for have the House or the Senate identified that, that you believe are problematic? I mean, what should these legislators perhaps reconsider? Because they're going to go into conference and none of this is really set in stone yet. And Peter, why don't you kick this one off?
3: Well, obviously, I start worrying uh, principally about the seed corn of where long-term innovation and disruption is going to come from, and so it's disturbing to me when I look and see that really, really novel things like uh, space solar power spider looks like it's getting you know as much as uh, fifteen million cut, uh, rocket cargo uh, losing between twelve to twenty-five million, which is like a third to a half of its tiny budget. And then, uh, you know, if if you're trying to increase the importance of the combatant command, Space Command's tiny R&D support, they're losing like a third of that. Uh, DARPA's Draco looks like it's down about 13%. And then like this new long-range kill chains uh, also looks like it might be losing, uh, you know, 20%. And then when you look at sort of uh, classified programs. So the one that's just called classified looks like it could go anywhere. So you know, last year's presidential budget request was five billion, and this this time it's up to almost six, five point seven, and it could either go down as much as one hundred and seventy eight, or it could go up as much as a half a billion, depending on you know whether or not the uh, that um, which of the two committees gets their way in committee. Uh, and then there's also under the classified special activities, they're losing like half a billion dollars. And so you, you wonder in the attempt, you know, to, to get ahead in here, just how secure are we in those areas?
2: I'll, I'll add something here, Peter. I, I personally think that a lot of this goes back to the with the president's budget request and on the senate side being fairly in much in lockstep with the president's budget request because you know usually whichever side controls the senate if they're matching the white house they typically don't want to rock the boat too much whereas the house may have a little bit of tendency to go a little more aggressive one way or the other especially if they're the opposing party but when you look at the current policy of the space priorities framework um, you know it's it sees military space as enable and support and most of the programs that have any any type of plus up whatsoever um, is mostly that kind of a thing. it's it's you know it's all the support infrastructure that we've been doing for the last 40 50 years and all the stuff that Peter mentioned like rocket cargo and Draco nuclear thermal propulsion and the classified special programs, which I'm hoping is, where the, the hard and soft kill that the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Space Operations mentioned earlier in the year during the markup phase is probably at. And you're showing to basically to the world that, A, we're cutting the Space Force's budget, which is already the smallest of any of the services. You're, you're, you're basically whittling down the U.S. Space Command, as Peter mentioned, down to not being able to advance any real causes. And on top of that, you're seeing both leaders of the service and the combat command basically seemingly falling in or being restrained or constrained by this enable and support, where they change the unified command plan into the primary mission uh, is terrestrial support and not protecting and defending, deterring and and if needed, war fighting in space to protect our infrastructure. And so, this is just sort of my starter point on the big picture because I think this is what we're seeing in the budget is, you know, what's most important and to the current uh, folks, they're not really sure what to do with it. And the RDT&E may be going up a little bit, as Sam mentioned, and the classified side for RDT&E, but it seems like we never get out of the RDT&E lane when it comes to counter-space systems or other special things that we needed 10 years ago. And we're still constantly having to fight the battle, as you see in some of the re- rationale for these cuts is like under executed, basically, or, or not making a good enough case, um, things of that sort. And, and a lot of that's just based on the opinions or on the lack of, of information that's given to the committees by the administration's representatives in the DOD. So there, there's a lot to talk about in that. And I don't know if we'll go into that, but that's just something that I see that concerns me. About some of the stuff that Peter's mentioned, it's it's coming from policy, and you're seeing that manifest itself in dollars.
0: You know, if I can if I can jump in, Laura, I I would just note, you know, I, I I do think this is a central debate, right? That's affecting what we invest in and what we prioritize in. Is, you know, how much of of space is you know this relationship of space and warfare how much is space going to be you know primarily a domain to support terrestrial warfare and how much of it is going to be a domain for warfare itself and, and you know I, I think there's you know where you land on that spectrum is going to uh, impact kind of which types of investments you want to prioritize i mean the one thing that's clear to me and one thing that's not cut in in either the house or the senate bills is this broader push toward resiliency by moving to lower orbits and at, at higher numbers, right? Like the, this idea of, you know, of we're going to have more systems um, therefore they're going to be disincentivized from trying to, to, to attack our systems because any attack is only going to take out a small percentage of the capability that, you know, that's been a real trend in what we've seen the space force invest in and as well as what the House and the Senate have supported each year. You know, one thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, SDA's, the Space Development Agency's budget, um, you know, from four years ago when they started, their budget based on this year's request would be an increase of 35 times what they initially got, right? Like they have had tremendous budgetary success. And each year Congress... Uh, and one of the, the two bills, one of the HACTI or SACTI bills will say, hey, we're concerned about, you know, how much this is costing. However, we're going to give you even more money than you asked for. Right. Like like consistently that the Senate that Congress has been giving, you know, for missile warning and tracking at, at Leo um, for the transport layer, you know, these these big projects that are focused on. Really high numbers, low altitudes. They've been expressing concerns about the cost, but then yet giving uh, SDA more money than what the administration requested. So, so I, I think it's a really, you know, it's an interesting trend that we're seeing. Um, and I think, you know, it begs this question of, to, to to your point, if if the budget, you know, the Space Force is, has received pretty significant budget increases uh, over the last four years, right, near doubling. Uh, 15.3 billion to 30.2 billion in this year's request um, over over four years right like what happens when that when that gets more stable and you know how how are some of these uh, these architectures as they start growing and getting more expensive um, you know how are we going to balance that with other priorities and other emergent priorities right that, that we're not even thinking about we're not focused on right now
2: Oh, and Sam, amazing. you also mentioned you also mentioned that you know that you know the priorities, and as they're putting all their money into the low Earth orbit disaggregated things, they're they're taking vehicles out of the next gen OPIR at the geo level, and they're also cutting that program pretty substantial, and even so so definitely Derek Turner has been a very good salesman and a good spokesman for his concept despite some of the things that I've been arguing is that, you know, everyone is jumping on the bandwagon and everyone's trying to copy each other and they're ignoring or not thinking it matters that the Chinese have already, are already looking at ways to counter that through concepts like system destruction, where they don't view it as hundreds of targets. They view it as one big target and they have a multi-layered structure to deal with that. And by the way, um, just because you you know if you put them lower it's more in range of, of, of different weapon systems whereas you have a little bit more cushion from various counter space activities at the mio and geo levels which is part of the arguments that the next gen guys are probably giving um, but yet they still lost one of their planned architecture satellites um, as they as they try to go that wet that route and whether Congress continues with some of the language of having a multi-layered approach to that and other systems, I'm not sure. But, you know, again, you know, if we're not looking at what the adversary is doing, you know, it may be the best sales pitch you can get and it may be value added in the dollars. But if it's not what you need to do the mission for which the institutions were created for, um, you know, we're kind of in a we're not in a good spot. Yeah, and I just want
3: to jump on that as well, because, you know, Chris mentioned the UCP and what policies is coming in terms of support. And I really applauded, uh, you know, your your recent discussion on uh, LinkedIn and your your piece about, you know, if the Space Force isn't going to defend critical commercial infrastructure, then who, who's going to do that? And so I don't think that it is, you know, only a question of support or in space warfare, I think it fundamentally is about the competition itself in the space domain, maintaining a posture, you know, very much an arms race kind of mentality of always making it uncertain. And so, you know, the there's, there's this terrific, you know, joint concept out on competing uh, from which I'm sure that the, the CSO probably took his theory of success since it's defined in there. And, you know, there really, you know, there really could be more attention being paid to how you extend and push commercial, uh, you know, out there and protect it since, you know, that really that is one of the reasons we created the Space Force is to protect America's interests in space.
1: I'd like to say just for my part, the thing that kind of puts a pit in my stomach is You know, what's happening with RDT&E? You know, what's happening with science? What's happening with, you know, thinking, you know, not 10 years out, 10 years, you know, 20 years out, 30 years out. You know, what's the science that has to be done to do exactly what you were talking about there, Peter? Because it is a competition and the competition is going to be won by those that become the masters of the physics that's, that's going on out there. So that's 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 where I have a pit in my stomach, and I I guess I'll just go on to the next question here. Well, before um, you do, I mean, sure.
3: you know, there's there's some health in the budget, but of course, advanced R- R&D was cut 5%, and we've talked about some of the areas, you know, where we know that disruptions can come, uh, and at least, you know, even though they're not putting the, you know, as much money against the advanced stuff as we would like, uh, you know, or the classified stuff. Language in there that is talking, you know, positively about nuclear thermal, nuclear electric, um, you know. then there's a ton of language on moving target indicators, uh, which is interesting because you know both the Senate and House language specifically talks about uh, that the you know going so far as to say the Air Force, sorry, the Department of the Air Force is aggressively you know, going after the Space Force is aggressively going after uh, a uh, ground moving target indicator program. But of course, there's nothing that's called that by name in the budget.
2: Yeah, I'll just mention one thing about about words. Um, Back maybe 10 years ago now, in one of the earlier incarnations of, of documents that they call the QDR, the Quadrennial Defense Review, there was a bunch of language in there that supported the seed corn, as Peter calls it, for space RDT&E, whether it's basic research, advanced research, and beyond. And yet, over the next four years, the president's budget request cut each year by 20%. Now, over the last few years, there's been a little bit of bump in that. And part of the reason why you haven't people have that I've heard anyway have told me, yeah, the reason why that happens is because the research in the government sphere is not really leading the way like it used to. And most of the innovation is coming on the commercial side and therefore it's probably better to do more partnerships with commercial sector and leverage what's called IRAD or industry research and development as the way of getting ahead a lot faster. Um, As we, you know, heard numerous, numerous times that go faster mantra, which people usually say go where faster, but they never really quite say that. So as a result, well, that's or why go, you might go into
1: the Valley of Death faster. I mean, yeah, that's well, part that, of the issue, too. right?
2: Yeah. So, so just that—that's some of the some of the rationale people might say to some of what we're discussing. And I am happy, as you know, to see you know all the nuclear thermal and nuclear electric stuff in there. It's just I, I'm I'm kind of tired of them being in research and development when we've been researching and developing some of these types of technology since the 1960s, and it's like. Can we can we build it now? <laughs> can Remember, we deploy something? I mean, I'm all for RDT and E, but can we move it beyond that? That would a, be great. Absolutely.
3: But you know, let's look at a at a converse example, right? So there's the whole issue of of uh, commercial synthetic aperture radar, which is right there, yep. right? We've got like yep. at least three companies ready to provide it. And so, you know, we had this initial program where NGA and partnership with, you know, NRO started to walk down the path of putting out a carrot there uh, for industry and then uh, then it seems like they attempted to to walk it back to freeze out or limit the potential role of SAR to rely on on their own systems you know in, in a way that could you know frankly devastate the industry and it looks like Congress caught wind of this and essentially you know threatened The NRO is saying that, you know, hey, uh, we could be giving this money to the Space Force COMSO if if you don't want it. Um, And what's the COMSO? So so that is the brand new Space Force uh, commercial office, uh, which is looking, you know, they certainly would like to have the ambition of buying all things uh, commercial. And I think there's a lot of folks out in industry that frankly uh, think at this point that the Space Force might be a more credible Partner in the long term to uh, to buy commercial, but in any case, you know you can see that the intent of Congress is clearly like they have this language that says that they are encouraged to see NRO execute a service level agreement for electro-optical, and that they want it to move into phenomenologies like synthetic aperture radar, radio frequency hyperspectral. So it's it's very clear what direction Congress wants to push these. Ready on the shelf uh, capabilities that Chris is talking about, and those are the companies you would think are in a position to innovate fast.
0: Uh, and I, I would just note, um, you know, on the on the commercial front too. I mean, to be fair, the Space Force budget has been criticized for not more aggressively transitioning to commercial either, right? Like this has been something that's been a criticism of, of at least on the, you know, DoD side. Duty broadly, like right? This is something that's been criticized, and and you know the the House and Senate bills have been also trying to push the Space Force to go more aggressively, uh, to, to 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 go further in with respect to exploiting commercial uh, space technologies, including things like what Chris mentioned of you know actually just asking them to to warn. Um, to warn commercial providers if there are threats, um, as well as kind of increasing you know, some of the funding. I mean, we haven't seen yet, you know, and I think this is, you know, when we see it, it'll be really interesting, right? Like the co are using commercial space to a greater extent, but but when we actually see foregoing traditional acquisition because we're relying much more heavily on commercial services, right? That, that That's going to be a really crucial moment. Um, and I think... You know some outside observers have criticized uh, DOD's budget that we haven't done that right yet, right? And and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, even though commercial space is getting used, obviously it's gotten a lot of attention. You know, the thing I always point out when people say, "Well, you know, now we're finally serious about using commercial space for national security," look, look at all the the leadership and in, in DOD, Air Force, Space Force who are saying this. You know, we have we have presidential documents saying exploit commercial space to the greater, greatest extent practical, you know, going back 40 years. Right. And it hasn't happened yet. So, so this, you know, this, there, there is, we're, we're getting closer, I think. And I think we're really, there's a lot of opportunity right now. Um, but we full, we haven't fully exploited it yet.
3: By the way, on that note, it's interesting that the Congress also weighed in and said, you know, hey, you know, good job thinking about this uh, 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 Civil Reserve space fleet, and we want to hear more. So put together, you know, a briefing and tell us how you would set it up in this time-faced manner.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think that's a, and I'm sorry, Chris, I I think that's a fascinating issue, right? Like this, and we've been thinking a lot about, you know, this, how how to leverage, how the government should think about leveraging commercial space in a conflict or crisis and and across the kind of spectrum of provocation. And, you know, there's a lot of different poli- policy questions and policy choices that the government should think about, whether it's, you know, how to ramp up uh, capabilities really fast, you know, how to integrate them really quickly, um, how to ensure that they survive, right? Um, you know, obviously the uh, the the economy isn't what it was a couple of years ago with respect to venture capitalist investment. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of really, really good and important questions in the space community about how should DOD do this? Um, and and there's not, I think a clear answer.
2: Well, one more thing before, I know Laura has been trying to get in, but because of what you said, Peter, how you mentioned this, the, the craft for space thing, civil reserve air fleet kind of thing, Um, And and the fact that, you know, Congress is interested in that, Um, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention that because you mentioned my editorial about protecting commercial with the commander of U.S. Space Command essentially saying to commercial providers, you know, I haven't been told to protect you. So, you know, deal with it, Um, even though to me that's that's an implied task that he has as part of his marching order, whether it's his number two priority and not his number one priority, it's still an implied task, whether he has something in writing signed by the president or the secretary. So that's, it's kind of weird when you have, we support you out of one side of your mouth and then out of the other side of your mouth. Yeah. We support you to provide us with stuff, but we're not going to protect it because we're putting all of our money into modernizing support infrastructure and not enough into finding that balance. I think Peter mentioned a balance where you have the ability to protect these things because if you can't protect them because the adversary china in particular is working on ways to deny that and destroy that uh all of it the the all sorts of different constellations that we need um if you don't have that stuff protected it's not going to provide any services for you so you're kind of defeating yourself yeah i want to decisions
3: in because you know I, I used we talk to have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we talk about protection, right, you know, people seem to think that this means that I've got to have a Guardian satellite sitting up next to, you know, every uh, Starlink satellite, um, protecting it from some, you know, would be grappler, you know, or somehow, you know, providing them, you know, with, uh, you know, with tools that would stop, you know, cyber or EW mischief. But you know, let me just point out that we don't hold that kind of high bar to protection of commercial assets in other domains. You know, there is absolutely nothing that is going to stop, you know, a uh, surface-to-air missile from shooting down an American jet, other than knowledge that Air Force bombers might be coming for your next. And there is pretty much nothing that the Navy can do to stop our. Oil tankers, our LNG tankers, our, our uh, container ships from being hit by a, a uh, um, shore-to-sea missile or or get sunk by a submarine. Right? What the way that we protect those is, you know, basically by a demonstrated willingness to do tit-for-tat and to hurt back. And so, you know, I actually think the the case is much stronger. I certainly understand. That the active protection, as in a defended asset list, for one particular thing rests with a presidential decision. Okay, I, you know, I'm not going to disagree that that's the way it should be. But in terms of public talking points, you know, you know, as you and I were conversing on LinkedIn, um, it's absolutely unimaginable that the uh, indo commander, you know, would say, "Hey, you know, if the president hasn't told me to protect a commercial ship, it's fair game." And uh, and so you know, I don't think it's even an implied task. I think when the Space Force and Space Command, you know, the Space Force is legally constituted to protect America's interests in space, I don't see how you can even say that that's an implied task. That's an absolutely specified task.
2: I was trying to be generous, but I agree with you totally. <laughs> Back to you, Laura. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Gaining control back just for a few seconds, I'm sure. You know, Chris, you're known for being so full of sunshine with your critical <laughs> position and you know, on this podcast and in op-eds. So this would usually be a really tough question for you. But what in either the Senate and House versions do you like and i've got to tell you that when i read the house bill language about nuclear electric space propulsion i thought of you and maneuver warfare
2: yes yes that is definitely one thing i am happy about and i i will i'm not all critical all the time i have mentioned positive things um when they're when i see them and uh so yeah the the provision for nuclear electric i think is interesting Given uh, the mention that, you know, the the Draco, which was mentioned by Peter, is nuclear thermal, which is leveraging um, uh, low enriched uranium rather than highly enriched uranium to power the core. Um, and that's supposed to be tested in orbit for the first time ever in like 26, 25 time frame. But nuclear electric is new. um and the reason why it's 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 become of interest to Congress, as they say in their own document, is is nuclear thermal is good for propelling things um, fairly rapidly and lasting a long time, because it's it's a lot more efficient than chemical propulsion. It's a lot quicker than electric propulsion. But nuclear electric just means that it has the the nuclear power to not only power its propulsion system but a lot of potential military payloads that can be carried on whatever the the ship is or the the satellite that it's pushing around. So whether it's you know protecting cis lunar space or being able to respond to to issues or to send things out for an exploratory mission, nuclear electric provides the ability for power and propulsion that you can't get from a more traditionally designed chemically propelled solar or fuel cell-based power system. And, uh, you know, if they can get that through, that would be great. Um, I'm a fan of either of them because, as you mentioned, you know, I did write a paper um, a year or two ago about how that can help facilitate the ability to counter Chinese maneuver warfare or mobile warfare, as they call it, capabilities that they're looking at uh, in the near term, not long term, in the next decade plus for, uh, cis-lunar activities and being able to transit between key orbital regimes in a lot less time than the standard days, weeks, and months, depending on the type of uh, propulsion system you have and the types of innovative orbital maneuvering you use. This this allows you to you get there a lot faster. So I'm very happy to see that. Um, I am happy to see, uh, as was mentioned, also that they didn't zero out completely rocket cargo. And some of these other programs, because while a lot of people look at them as science fiction, because, you know, they're not used to that being around and they think it's kind of crazy. You know, Peter, I think, as as a former cargo plane pilot, knows how expensive flying things around the Earth is and how expensive shipping things by sea is. And when people need things rapidly, you know, air has been sort of the, the high end, high expense way to get it there fairly quickly. But now with with the the ability to do rocket cargo, once they start testing and improving it out with Starship or whatever system they use as a model, I think that's something that'll be great not only for Earth-based issues, uh, logistics and whatnot, but also for for the for the lunar economic growth that's that's you know potentially coming as many reputable financial institutions are are speaking to uh, upwards of several trillion dollars of worth and value that you know, being able to get there first is something that's going to be very important. So I'm, I was very happy to see that. So that's that's a positive.
1: And Peter, Sam, did you see anything in there that, that made you say, okay, well, there are all these things that bug me, but, you know, this is actually pretty good.
3: Well, the big thing, of course, I'm super happy that at least in the house, we've got a Space National Guard. So I definitely like that. Um, you know, I also you know it's hard not to notice congress sort of stroking the dod for doing the right things on commercial uh it's very clear you know that like the number of times that Cislunar is mentioned in both uh, is quite significant it's good to see uh, interest in power and propulsion um you know which is uh which is terrific and isam uh it's interesting they even you know had a, a request for a study looking at uh, nuclear power in excess of two megawatts, which I think is uh, is is terrific. So I I think the talking points, you know, are increasingly sort of converging on the sort of things that those of us who have been around for a long time have sort of been pushing and saying like, hey, here's where the innovation could be, you know, in, invest here. Um, and of course, I'd like to see, you know, that that get funded more. But I think it's, it's really nice to see that the language is, you know, starting to push and anticipate where I think we're going to get more future investment. And I just to footstop, you know, what Chris was saying, I absolutely think that, you know, you cannot solely be focused on this uh, vertical component of space power. You know, you have to be thinking about space, you know, some archipelago, archipelago of islands uh, where the moon is the the next major, um, you know, uh, part of our economic sphere and where the Space Force is going to play a key role in making, you know, that a, a safe and secure place for commerce. And I'd like to see a lot more of that in the talking points, particularly in the posture statements.
0: Laura, if I can mention really quickly three things. You can
1: mention whatever you want, Sam.
0: Well, I mean, I wasn't part of the LinkedIn chain uh, where Chris and, and Peter were just like complimenting each other and each other's work. So, I you know, I feel really like Um Next time you'll have to let me know. Uh, so, so three things, two things that I think are good and, and something that I thought was striking and just notable that I wanted to bring up. One is something that's good on the SACD side is... I think, the, the emphasis on commercial and, and trying to push uh, the Space Force to, to use commercial to a greater extent. Something on the House side has nothing to do with actually the, the budget numbers itself, but it could be really important for the budget it is, you know, there's this, this measure that's not, that didn't receive a lot of attention that they would have a, for next year, have a new budget exhibit that would be built around capability areas and portfolio areas, and and this isn't just to make them do more work, but this is really kind of a test to see what could happen if we gave the services a little bit more control, a little bit more flexibility based on mission area rather than budget line, right? And, and I, I think that that is really intriguing and really interesting, and can change how uh, it could be the starting point for how the services start maybe change the way they budget and, and change slightly change this relationship that, that we've seen. Um, so, so I think that's, that's super significant, hasn't gotten a lot of headlines, but really probably one of the most important things uh, in any of these bills. The, the thing that I think is striking, both in the Senate and House side, and, and frankly with the administration's uh, request, was, was how much change is on space-based nuclear command and control. And I'm biased because before uh, working on space, I was focused on nuclear weapons issues and and a lot of space-based NC3. And you know this budget, if you look at some of the biggest budget lines, it's next generation space-based areas focused on either missile warning and tracking which we've talked a lot about and strategic SATcom, which is, you know in making sure that leadership has, Connectivity in a nuclear conflict can reach its nuclear forces in a nuclear conflict. Um, you know these two areas, missile warning and, and strategic satcom, consume a big piece of uh, of the space forces budget. And and there's also the budget lays out how the next generation programs are going to be a lot different than their predecessors. You know the on the missile warning and tracking side, obviously you know, we've already talked about you know the Leo and MEO architectures, missile warning and tr- has always been in in high orbits, always been in geo and polar. So so this transition and what that means for NC3 is really important. Hack D brought this up in their criticism of the analysis uh, supporting the decision to cut the third geo bird. You know, on the Senate side, they've been trying to cut the polar side for a while, right? So, so there's this really interesting question about how does NC3 change as we move into this fundamentally new architecture, missile warning and tracking. On the on the strategic SATCOM side, that's also changing in a way that also hasn't grabbed as many headlines. But, you know, traditionally, our satellites that have supported nuclear command and control with respect to to comms have always served two missions, nuclear forces and conventional forces. The same satellites are designed to, to communicate with our ballistic missile submarines, as well as with army combat, combat uh, brigade, combat teams, right? Same satellites. That's changing with the next generation systems. We're splitting apart those satellites so that it's PTS, which is going to be the tactical program designed for conventional comms, um, and ESS, evolved strategic satcom, which is focused on the strategic side. That received a big cut um, on the in the Senate Appropriations Committee bill. But but what's interesting to me is isn't just the cut, but, but just how this is different from the past. And, you know, th- there's been a long debate about uh, this has, you know, been talked about since 2010, uh, even probably earlier, but of trying to cut the, the strategic SATCOM program into specifically strategic SATCOM capabilities that only speak to nuclear forces versus having separate satellites talk to conventional forces. But, you know, part of the rationale here, part of the argument has always been kind of going to Chris's earlier point, has been about space warfighting, right? And the idea has been, you know, if if an adversary is going to attack um, our system that's doing conventional uh, comms, we don't want that to also be the capability that's doing nuclear comms, right? And, and we don't want to sort of inadvertently, you know, have an adversary inadvertently uh, undermine our nuclear command and control. So anyway, I, this this divide between PTS and ESS, with ESS being the first ever US strategic SATCOM program not designed to talk to uh, conventional tactical forces, I think is really important and um, hasn't gotten enough attention.
1: And now... I want to kind of revisit something that was brought up earlier, and that is the Space National Guard. The House, for the second year in a row, has legislated the creation of a Space National Guard. The Senate seems to want to kick the can down the road by asking for another report due after the close of the president's current term. And the president is dead set against it. So, gentlemen, Will this be the year that we actually see a Space National Guard?
2: Well, I'll start off by saying that um, I think it's actually the third year that the House has supported this because we, we've we you know seen that since at least before 2019, which was the FY20 NDAA, that they ignored it the first year just to get the Space Force out of the, the building there. The 21, 22 in 23, all had House support, but not Senate support. What we've seen over the last several years is a slowly increasing in support on the Senate side, a more uh, solid uh, support on the House side. And because, as I mentioned earlier, um, unless it's just something unique, if, if the party in the Senate that controls the Senate is matching up with the, the, the guy and or girl in the White House um, party wise, then they they typically don't want to go against something that they're that strongly about in their statements of administrative administration policy. So I don't think we'll see it this year unless something happens to where they want to trade. The House wants to trade something with the Senate for it because if it's not mentioned in some form in both bills, it typically doesn't survive first contact and conference committee. And, uh, I mean, anything can happen and I would like to see it happen. Um, but you know, with, with lots of different things going on, uh, where the president's threatened vetoes, <laughs> um, of the NDAA, which is kind of a no, no, um, you know, toward the military bill. Uh, I'm just, I'm not seeing it. I'm hoping, but I'm not seeing it yet. So, I think the the studies, as we keep seeing every year, those are tools put in by supporters to try to keep the discussion alive another year, even though this issue has been studied to death for numerous, numerous years and multiple times per year. Uh, So the study, I don't think, is because they don't have the answers. I think it's a a legislative tactic to, to keep the discussion open and not allow the guard space missions to be absorbed or destroyed for another year. We'll see.
3: Well, I am also hopeful. Um, I think it's unfortunate, you know, to, I, and I hope that the Senate would not kick the can down the road and leave a significant amount of the Space Force's warfighting capabilities uh, orphaned um, in the Air Force, which increasingly, you know, you can tell is uncomfortable Uh, having those uh, unclear whether or not they have the proper authorities to maintain them. And, and, uh, and so, but, you know, whether or not they'll be able to do it with a hostile uh, White House, um, you know, this year uh, remains to be seen. You know, I, I don't know who who put in the study, but, you know, I will say the, the opposite scenario of what, you know, Chris laid out happens too, which is that, those in favor of kicking the can down the road who aren't, you know, or are, are, will compromise and give something or give, you know, the, the appearance of forward action. Now, the good thing is that actually, you know, ultimately did result in forward action for the space force. The Senate did exactly the same thing. The house said, let's go with the space corps." The Senate said, ah, oh, not so fast. I'm not convinced we really need this. Let's, let's have a study. Um, and of course, you know, they eventually came around. So it's it's also not unusual for the Senate to be a bit slow when it comes to understanding, you know, what must be done with military organization.
2: It's it's how they were designed. They were supposed to be a deliberative body, but sometimes (laughs) a little too deliberative, maybe in some cases. This is probably one of those that seems to make a lot of sense to a lot of people on both sides of the of the aisle. So but we shall see in probably October or November since we'll probably not have a full bill. No, we're going to be on continuing
1: resolutions. (laughs) Probably. All right. And Sam, you look like you're about to say something. I I
0: was just going to say, don't say that, Laura. Let's, let's have good mojo kind of going into this fingers crossed.
1: I completely agree. And, and lastly, what do we think about the announcement that Space Command is allegedly staying in Colorado? Peter, I know that you had a view towards this.
3: You know, I I am frankly shocked that they would make that decision and risk getting the chairman of the House Armed Services, uh, you know, as well as senators from Alabama, you know, so irked at them, um, and in such a position to hurt the Department of the Air Force in so many ways, and I don't see any possibility that Alabama is going to back down on this. So I hardly think that the that the declaration of, you know, the uh, operational capability is the end of the story. This strikes me. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the new Top Gun, and of course you remember that you know Tom Cruise was up there pushing it, trying to get to Mach 10 before they shut down his program. So I think, you know, this is sort of the pirate victory, you know, that we've seen where they have sped as fast as they can to get to IOC in order to claim that that is the the reason why they uh, can't move to one of the top four things that actually went through the, the, the committee. So and I'm just, not convinced and, and, just at all. Say,
1: and just say what IOC is, for those who don't know.
3: So, or sorry, you know, it's is an IOC or is it FOC? It, it's, it's an it's IOC,
2: operate. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's initial operating capability is what they they claim they have now. Right. And, and the argument was, is that if you want to get the full operating capability or FOC, then moving it will cause problems. And as I mentioned in a LinkedIn post of an article about that, that the whole argument that they had... Toward keeping it in Colorado, as Peter said, was, oh, if you move the the, the 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 command, then that'll affect readiness and mission ability. Well, in reality, Colorado is not where you know everything is right now. When Space Command was stood up in 2019, and it's basically fractioned fractionated between three main locations. There's still pieces in Omaha, Nebraska. At, the, at Strategic Command, there's pieces in Colorado Springs, and there's pieces out in California. And the whole point of the decision initially to move it to Redstone Arsenal was because, A, there's lots of land there to build upon, but also because you need a place to put everything into one location so that the commander has access to all of his staff members and not having to rely on you know, video teleconference and all that kind of stuff. So the fact that they're saying, oh, that the command will be uprooted and mission won't be able to be done is kind of false because the transition between STRATCOM and U.S. Space Command with three different locations, the mission did not stop during the transition of the mission from Omaha, Nebraska to Colorado Springs as a provisional headquarters. So the idea that moving everything over time, because it's going to take a few years to get the military con- construction funding and everything else going, the idea that that's somehow going to hinder full operating capability of a, essentially an office building with some command centers, the forces themselves are not based there. This is a building of leadership, planners, and people like that. It's important to have a headquarters for the generals and his staff, but the mission is not going to stop being done just because it doesn't move to one place or the other. So I didn't buy that argument, and the fact that that's still being used is odd to me. So, but as Peter says, I don't think, you know, Mike Rogers, the House Armed Services Committee chair is just going to go, hmm, okay, whatever. He's already doing an investigation on it that was happening before the president made his decision to reverse everything after two different studies over three different election cycles. That's that's what I think. Which is odd
3: too, because I really do think that, you know, when, when the Air Force does their installation review, you know, I think they're trying as, as hard as possible to be apolitical in their scoring. now. Whether well, they or not were the scoring criteria itself, you know, is something, you know, that you agree or disagree on. I mean, th- this argument, you know, is sort of in, in many ways not unlike those who were opposing the Space Force saying we're just too busy right now. You know, I mean, if we take time out to, you know, to have a new headquarters for a Space Force you know, it'll compromise our readiness and, and we'll get behind. So, you know, it, it's a question of like, what's going to ultimately be better for you in the long term? And there are arguments both ways. There are folks who say, you know, hey, it's a great thing that somebody from, you know, Space Command can walk next door to Space Force. Others say it's incredibly stupid to put all your Space Command and Control stuff in the same place. And there are other folks who say it contributes to, you know, uh, you know, groupthink. And then there are all those questions about lifestyle and cost, um, which is, I think, one of the big reasons why they were favoring Huntsville was that the, the uh, cost of housing there was apparently attractive.
1: All right, gentlemen. Well, then that's all the time we have. And thank you all so much for coming back. Thanks again. Thanks for having me again. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.